Waldy and Bendy. Hello, welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they couldn't stop. I'm Waldy, otherwise known as Valdemar Janusztrak, art critic of the Sunday Times, and I'm joined as always by the legend who is Bendor Bendy Grosvenor. Now we talk about art, we moan a lot, I'm usually right, he's usually wrong. That's basically how it works, right Bendy? Well, as what's the saying, even a stopped clock tells the right time twice a day, so occasionally I get things right. <laughs> yes, anyway, this week we're going to be talking to Philippa Perry and her husband, Grayson Perry, about art, about isolation, and their TV programme, The Art Club. So that's all coming up. And remember, everything we talk about here is also covered on the Waldy and Bendy podcast pages of the Sunday Times. You get the paintings, you get web addresses, photos. It's a gold mine of useful information. Everything's there. Uh, but first, Bendy, next week, uh, among the hundreds of exhibitions that are not happening, is that famous event, the Royal Academy Summer Show. Now, I regret most of these cancelled shows, 99.9% .9 of them, but I don't regret this one. I can't stand the Royal Academy Summer Show. What do you think of that? Well, I, I like it, but in a sort of voyeuristic way. I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever felt compelled to want to buy anything, to stick a red dot on something. Um, but I always like wandering around to see what, what the latest sort of art movements are, I suppose, such as they are covered there, usually to tut at them and then come out and thinking, gosh, you don't paint like painters anymore, do they? <laughs> so you see, my problem is that as an art critic, you're expected to cover it, okay? I've been an art critic for a really long time. Everybody tells me far too long. I'm sure they're right, but I'm still here hanging in, you know. Um, and every blooming year in the summer, along comes the Royal Academy Summer Show. And I'm expected to go and, and, and write about it. Now, I have actually worked out loads of great wheezes now, and I've got, a, I've got out of it more years than not in recent decades. But I still, if I could possibly avoid going, I do. And it's, you see, the reason is, I think it's such a terrible situation in which to look at art. Everything's so crowded in there. I mean, there are talented people who just get lost in the sheer madness of it all. That's true. Um, so that whole aspect of it not being a place to which you can go actually to, to kind of learn about art or feel art or feel art's power or feel beauty, or feel any of the things that you think you go to art for, that's absolutely true of the Royal Academy Summer Show. So that is why I hate writing about it and I hate going. What do you think of that? Well, do you know, I see what you mean, but... I have to say, I've always liked a busy hang. Uh, it may be the old art dealer in me. I was always saying to people who said they ran out of space on the walls to buy a new picture, I would always say, well, have, you, have you tried the triple hang, madam? Um, so I like pictures stacked up one on top of the other. Um, and now I realise that having been rather rude about things at the RA exhibition, um, I remember last year I did, there were a couple of things I really liked. Um, now I can't actually remember what they were. One of them was, was made of bits of wire and it was a sort of take on a Bellini painting. I loved that. Um, but that, that said, you know, I have to uh, take the ex one exhibition out of the Royal Academy itself, which I'm a huge admirer of. I think the Royal Academy is, is a, a, a huge cultural asset to this country. Um, and it's been going with such history for so many centuries. Um, it still puts on, I think, the best exhibitions that you can, you can get to in that wonderful suite of rooms. I'm slightly biased because I do teach there. I've, I've taught connoisseurship courses there and I've lectured in a lovely, amazing new lecture theatre. So I am a bit biased, but I think um, it's a jewel in, in the cultural crown of this country. 
Well, it's it's three jewels, isn't it? And that's the interesting thing about it, because actually there are three things that happen at the Royal Academy. There is this exhibition venue, which is, of course, brilliant. And I'm in most of the best shows that I've seen in, the, in, in recent decades have been at the Royal Academy, you know, wonderful things like the Charles the first show there last year, but also more, you know, more modern stuff. And even the Bill Viola, Michelangelo show, you know, they're interesting bits of curation, if I can use your word from last week. Um, so the exhibition space, fabulous. I love that. The other part that is is the actual Royal Academy, you know, the, the, the 80 or so artists who, who are members of it, who are supposed to be, as it were, the most important artists in Britain today and who have this kind of private club, the Royal Academy, full of Royal Academicians. Well, what do they do in the real world? In most recent times, they have absolutely had no impact whatsoever on, on art. You know, they've been this kind of old bloke's home, really, and it has mainly been old blokes, um, sitting there, drinking their port, um, moaning about Picasso, you know, uh, and that was that was the identity of the Royal Academy for an awfully long time. It is changing now, which is a good thing, definitely a good thing. So that's the other side of the Royal Academy, the sort of the, the ex-old people's home with people drinking too much port and having red noses. There's also an art school there, you know, a free art school, and that's brilliant. But again, I don't feel it's been punching its weight. I mean, have, have there been any particularly good students emerging from the Royal Academy free art school recently? Uh, they haven't played big in my imagination. What about you, Bendy? I suppose you have to give it time to filter through because you're absolutely right that for uh, much of the 20th century, the RA had become um, that old farts club. Now, on one level, I'm quite keen on old farts club because I do like sitting down and complaining about life with a glass of port. Um, but you, I can see how when it comes to the artistic health of the nation, it's the absolute worst thing you want to have in charge because that is uh, often the essence of these art academies is that uh, when they're set up, uh, like the Royal Academy when that was set up, they can play a key role in helping to shape, indeed define for the very first time what what a British sense of art is. But it doesn't take long for them to become uh, the old farts club, the self-perpetuating guild, um, the union which doesn't allow any newcomers in. And that's what happened to the Royal Academy for, for decades, if not centuries. Uh, we don't need to go any further than to look at the, the terrible statistic um, that they didn't have any women Royal Academicians. Um, they had two when they started, uh, Mary Moser and Angelica Kaufman, and they didn't, didn't have another one until Dame Laura Knight, I think, in about the 1930s. Now, to its great credit, it has dramatically changed that over the last, what, 20 years or so? And so I suppose we need to give it a little bit of time for um, a new, different school of art to emerge from its own schools. Now, the reason we're talking about this is because I forced you to listen to a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell, who's um, sort of pop psychologist, sociologist, very entertaining. I like his podcast. He does this thing called the Revisionist History. Uh, and there was one about art, basically. It was called The Lady Vanishes. Um, I don't think you particularly follow his podcast before, but this one was almost specifically about the Royal Academy. Um, so what did you think of it? Oh, I enjoyed it. It was very interesting hearing all about Elizabeth Thompson, Lady Elizabeth Butler, she became. Um, and uh, another one of these artists who knocked really loudly at the door of the Royal Academy, but uh, was not uh, allowed to be a member, even though uh, I think her paintings are quite extraordinary. The people may be able to readily imagine her most famous picture, which is that, that fantastic image of a cavalry charge at Waterloo, which is uh, called Scotland Forever. Yes, um, you must you must go and pop over and see that quite a lot, being as you're based in Scotland. Um, oh, it's in Leeds, those Leeds Art Gallery, isn't it? Scotland forever. Um, yes, but the the 
I mean, so the, the podcast, right, was um, a kind, a strange sort of mixture of things because um, it's about a bigger idea than just the Royal Academy, of course. It's about this idea that, that people do one good thing and that gives them permission to do loads of bad things afterwards. It's this thing that, that Gladwell identifies, this urge, uh, which he calls moral licensing. So he picks out, for example, various countries that have picked a female prime minister. England was that at the time as well, although we've had another one since. Um, but Australia was a good example. There's a sort of harrowing scene in which the Australian prime minister, Julia Gillard, stands up and, and, and berates all these dreadful male chauvinists in the government around her. And, and as an example of that, the sort of leading example of that, he picks this this. British artist, female artist, Elizabeth Thompson, who paints this scene from, from the, the Battle of Crimea, with all these soldiers that are about to die, and one of them has in fact fallen over on the ground and he's dying. And so this was a big hit at the Royal Academy summer show of, of 1874. Apparently they had to put a policeman in front of it to stop the crowds, brushing against the picture. Um, they sold hundreds of thousands of prints of it. It was a massive success, but afterwards, Elizabeth Thompson was completely forgotten. So she had a big moment at the summer show, but then she wasn't elected a member and she was forgotten. So he uses that as this example of this thing called moral licensing. But um, what interests me is that what else happened in 1874, apart from Elizabeth Thompson appearing at the Royal Academy? What else happened, Bendor, 1874? Oh, well, Benjamin Disraeli was elected prime minister. Yeah, anything more artistic than that? Well, you've you've got me there because you know I did my PhD on his uh, his government in 1874, so that's all I know about 1874 is politics. It was the first impressionist exhibition. So the mm. first impressionist exhibition was 1874. So in <laughs> France, at the same time as this woman is painting um, this this sentimental, overblown image of of the British army at Crimea, long after the event. You know, art itself was going in a different direction. It was going towards a sort of looseness, a freedom, a progressiveness, a modernity. And well, I'm torn, you see, because part of me wants very much to support Elizabeth Thompson as a woman fighting against all those dreadful port-stuffing blokes at the Royal Academy. I like all that. But another side of me thinks her art is actually dreadful at the time you know and I know she was very conservative in her taste she hated the pre-Raphaelites she hated the aesthetic movement and, and she went on to marry a sort of general or something didn't she and, and went around the battlefields of the world painting great British soldiers charging everybody so this sort of colonial outlook in all this so it's hard for me to separate my dislike of the art from my total admiration for the fact that a woman finally gets to show and has a big hit at the Royal Academy. Yes well I it's terrible. Perhaps it's because I like used to like playing um, with toy soldiers, but I really like her pictures. <laughs> I think they're technically quite extraordinary. And, and the one of the the cavalry charge um, is is captivating. I could stand in front of it for hours. And the one you've mentioned, the, the Crimea one, the roll call. I think that's that's a rather. It, I mean, obviously, it reflects the the colonial and military aspects of the time, attitudes of the time. But it does shine a rather harsh lamp on them. I mean, it it is uh, it's a picture of of military failure. Um, so, no, um, hurrah for Elizabeth Butler, I say. Yeah, but uh, no, I'm not going to let you get away with this, this, this quickly, right? <laughs> it's important to me to discuss this. Is it, is it right that at the same time as art was being progressive and going down this wonderful direction, you know, Van Gogh was already painting, um, brilliant things were happening elsewhere. Is, is, is it right that at the same time in England, we were still reliving the Crimean War. We were reliving the Battle of Waterloo. We were still painting soldiers charging each other in uh, at war. 
you know, isn't that a, an indictment of, of, of British art at the time? Uh, well, it's an indictment of Britain, isn't it? Partly. I mean, we're still, we, we're, we're a nostalgic nation. We love to fall back into the, um, the comforting uh, one of our own, uh, you know, historical glories or what we perceive to be historical glories. Nothing's changed. We still do it today. Um, now, I think you were highlighting a specific problem with the Royal Academy and what I mentioned earlier, that sort of self-perpetuating elite, is it's very hard to allow new ideas into a, an organisation which is structured like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, art is horses for courses and I, I think it's probably a good thing that we weren't all being Impressionists at the same time because otherwise um, the Impressionists in France wouldn't have been able to make... Uh, their, their individual contribution to art history. You're a lovely, generous man. You really are, Bendor. Um, and, and of course, you're right. I mean, I know you're right. Um, but we're going to leave the Royal Academy there, leave it with our fingers crossed in hope for the future, and to go on to the next section of the podcast, the bit where we deal with isolation. 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 Bendy, one of the things that's been happening that's been sort of saving us during this period has been on television, we reviewed it, the uh, art club that's been presented for us by Grayson Perry and Philippa Perry. They've been on telly on, on Mondays. I think you enjoyed it, didn't you? I did. I enjoyed that one. I'm ashamed to say I haven't seen any others. Um, I think it comes on about my daughter's bedtime, so I don't get to see it as much as I should. Well, I've seen them all, and more than that, I've actually managed to talk to them. Um, so I grabbed them the other day in between takes. You know, they're incredibly busy doing this frantic show of theirs, but they made some time for me in the uh, in the early evening. Um, and so, yes, I mean, we Zoom talked away, um, and it was very interesting. So here we are. Here's me meeting Philippa Perry and her husband, Grayson Perry. So um, I'm going to start with you, Grayson. Uh, so how's the isolation been? Uh, has it been hard work? Isolation. Isolation. I hate it. I don't like it at all. I have no audience. My entire career has evaporated in front of my eyes. Um, I have nobody to dress up for. I have nobody to shout at from a stage. I have nobody in an exhibition space. So it has basically screwed my reason for making art in many ways. But you seem to have been really busy, and Philip has been busy as well. The two of you together, you've been at it all the time, haven't you? Well, what happened at the beginning of lockdown is that I hate plans. So all the plans evaporated, so I felt free and wonderful. But Grayson loves plans. Without the plans, he goes, what do I do? I don't know. But now I think you've got the hang of it. And you are living day to day much better. And I've had a, you know, quite a good month with no plans and feeling free. Now I'm just desperate to go to a party. But you've got used to it. So I think what happened at the beginning was Grayson was miserable and I was quite cheerful. And now I'm getting miserable and you're coping with it better. Well, I think when it's relaxed a bit and I can do more cycling, get on my motorbike and do more kind of my kind of pleasure activities then I feel a bit more placated. But I still am uh, hankering after that random social contact and inspiration of the, the conversation at the opening or the, uh, the, the person you sit next to dinner who you had a really good evening with. I really miss that. Early on in lockdown, I was watching a TV show 
and people were sitting down for, for dinner with a group of saints. I burst into tears. It was Simon Reeve going around the Mediterranean <laughs> and he met, he met some Turkish Cypriot freedom fighters for dinner. <laughs> and you cried. I cried. I said, look, they're just having a nice time. It's, <laughs> we're not having that. <laughs> One of the things you've been doing is this art club, right, which has been very popular and which doesn't look at all angsty. You look, you look like you're really enjoying yourselves. Hasn't that been a lot, lot of fun, Philippa? Well, um, for me, the point of making television is going out for drinks with the sound man and the cameraman and the director. <laughs> we don't see them, we just got robots. So at the end of the day, you know, some guy shouts through the window, that's a rat. And then they disappear. I thought, don't they want to have drinks with us? What have we done wrong? And then I remember, of course, we're not allowed to. You're using sort of automatic cameras, are you? Is that how it's done? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the crew is in three separate socially distanced little tents with their own portaloo in the yard of my studio. <laughs> and yeah, you know, we are... Sad television! But no, it works because it, it makes... I think one of the things we try to put over, and I think is the sort of... To make something quite calm. It's fun and it's uh, moving and it's profound sometimes but it's quite calm you know and it is quite interesting seeing what members of the public are coming up with i am truly moved by what people are sending in and by the process of their making it and how they come to make it it's just absolutely lovely something that a lot of reviewers have said and uh, it, i said it as well is it's a nice picture of your relationship i feel that you two together um, as this kind of power couple in art. You're really coming across in, a, in an intimate and lovely way. So are you the sort of go-to person on, on issues of psychology? Yeah, Philippa? I steal all Philippa's ideas. I put them into my art, and then she asked me how to make a pot. Basically, it's an exchange. Grayson is really good, because he'll ask me a question such as, you know, how do people see the world? And I say, well, they see it through <laughs> their own lens or something like that. But then... When it comes to the telly, he can say that so much more succinctly than me. So I make him look brilliant, really. Yeah, but you're making stuff as well, aren't you? So, I mean, do you have any sort of art past? Should I know that already? I went to art school, not for three years, for five years. So I really should be better than I actually am. She went to a trendy London art school. I only went to a kind of provincial art school. I went to Middlesex Poly. <laughs> Well, you're coming across in this interview as the sort of the, the power in this relationship, Philippa. I'm delighted to, to say that. But... I don't think I have the power in the relationship. I don't think Grayson has the power in the relationship. I think we've just passed it between us. Yeah. Now, one of the things that, that the show has really proved, and not just the show, lots of other things, because there's been stuff on the internet of people making things at home and recreating paintings and all that. And it's this sort of role of art in this situation. It seems to have been very wholesome. Grayson, is that, is that something you were expecting or is it something you were indeed trying to prompt? Um, no, I mean, I think it's wonderful how people have, people are in their homes and they're thinking about um, the material environment they're in and they want something to do. And art, you know, you can do it with anything. You can do it with a biro and a bit of old paper you found in the corner. Um, you don't need sort of masses of equipment. And so people have felt like, oh, I'll have a go at that. And I think it's good. And also, of course, it operates on a level 
that people are expressing themselves. It's all leaking out. There's an interview in Monday's show where this woman who did a sort of um, Barbie in lockdown installation, I think there was a lot of stuff leaking out. So I think it's just something that I sort of picked up on and, and indeed I kind of had a little moan at your first show when I talked about the fact that portraits should be more about likeness and not just about the, the making of it. But is, is art as, as a kind of therapy, if I can call it like that, is that the same thing as, as art, as fine art? No, I mean, it's not. I've set aside the stringent kind of quality control and the exquisite and the kind of amazingly complex uh, honed work of the professional and thought about art as an accessible um, way that, you know, a journey that people could start on. I'm not, I'm, I, it's quite interesting. I compared, the nearest thing I can compare it to is when I put together the summer show at the Royal Academy. You know, I was much more stringent then when I was choosing things and looking at things. Now I'm, I'm looking for stories, I'm looking for... I think you were looking for stories when you did the RA. Yeah, but I'm, I'm still, I, you know, I, I definitely have become more generous over the course of the last sort of four or five weeks mm. over it. It's, I'm not so sniffy about it because you know, we live in a bubble in the art world. We live in a bubble of kind of all the value, the culture, the microculture that is the art world. We've all signed up for it and it's great. And I have always enjoyed it. And it, and it is about kind of finding the, 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 the best things that express the, the culture that, you, that you've signed up for. But people aren't doing that. They're doing something different. Well, what do you think about that, Philippa? I mean, because uh, from your point of view, obviously, Art is doing people good, isn't it? That, that's making them feel great. Um, but is that the same thing as what you get at Tate Modern? Well, when you go to Tate Modern, you're actually looking at art. When you're in art club, you're making art. And there's far more benefit, I believe, to making art than to looking at it. Unless you are so interested in art, know all the history of art, that you can make loads of connections from what you're seeing. Because really what we want to do in order to be really human is to be connected. Now, when you go to Tate Modern, I bet you make loads of connections between what you know and what you see. But if you're not versed in art history, you might think, oh, that's a pretty colour and not be able to go much beyond that. Now, when you actually make art, you make connections with your unconscious and your subconscious and your feelings and what you're seeing. So you're making far more connections than if you're just looking at it. So I think you get so much more from making it than looking at it. And people have got so many sort of inchoate feelings around lockdown because it's a completely new situation. And I think they can use what they see and what they feel and how they process that into an artwork. And then when they've done it, they might just feel satisfied because they maybe have found a narrative for something that they didn't have a narrative before. Like when we did Fantasy Week, there were so many people doing pictures of Icarus. We thought, what's this about? Like flown too close to the sun. And it's, it's like we thought, oh, have humans gone too close to the sun? So, so the earth is fighting back. But even making a sort of story of it like that, even though that might be fantasy, 
it kind of gives people a narrative and something to hold on to. And that's what art does. It finds a narrative one way or another. And we are meaning making creatures. So when we make meaning of something, we kind of feel better. Oh, there you go. Nice positive thoughts there at the end. Um, Philippa Perry. I mean, she's very much the, the, the sort of unexpected star of this show, isn't yeah. she? Um, I mean, she seems to contribute just as much as Grayson to it all. Yes, I said at the, when we reviewed their exhibition, I could watch a programme with just them too. And I really love that interview, actually. I, I could have listened to a much longer chat with them. Um, so lucky you and thank you for doing it. She's she so charming. So, so they said some good things there, don't you think, Bendy? They did. They said very interesting things. I mean, one of the things that struck me was was the way Philippa sort of assumed that I think people like you and I, when we look at uh, historic art, old paintings, we make all sorts of art historical connections. Then uh, that's the overwhelming thing that we're doing when we see it. Now, it may be because I'm, I have to admit to being a really terrible art historian, actually, that my first reaction when I look at a lovely painting is, isn't that a lovely painting? I'm, I'm, I'm often so impressed or overwhelmed with the, the craft of it, you know, the sense of, gosh, how did they do that? The brushstrokes and the technique. And, and then, of course, the, the beauty and the emotional drama of the picture. I don't know about you, but I, it takes me a long time, if in fact I ever do, to start making a sort of academic art historical connections to other historical moments or other artists at work. And I thought that was just an interesting reflection on on how she assumed you and I look at art but I don't think she meant that I, I don't think she meant that connection in the sense that oh you know I see a Jackson Pollock and immediately I know what year he painted it and I, I think she meant something different I, I think the, the, she meant the painting spoke to me or, or speaks to you um, and sometimes I mean you can't speak French if you don't know French and you can't speak Polish if you don't understand Polish right and and with art it helps to have this stuff in you when you meet the picture because then you can understand what it's saying to you but the, the actual connection doesn't change so in other words if I'm looking at a religious painting and I happen to know that that's Mary Magdalene and that's Saint Jerome that information comes with me when I see that picture you know it can communicate to me but mm. it, it, the communication is still the thing that counts the depth of of message the way that the picture speaks to me so it doesn't really depend on me being um connected in an art historical sense it's just that it's a language i i understand because i've because i'm a bit familiar with it you know mm. but the important thing is that it speaks to me um and it so happens to speak to me if i've seen a lot of other paintings but i think what she's saying is that when someone makes a picture obviously that communication's there because they're making it mm. i think i am looking at art slightly differently to you because sometimes perhaps I should admit it sometimes I'm so interested in the technique and the way it's painted that I could look at a painting for a good 10 or 15 minutes and not actually clock what the subject is so I could stand in front of Mary Magdalene and not actually realize that's what it is and I think that's I think that's a weakness I have in in my uh, art historical appreciation but I think it's also uh, a strength because one of my uh, beefs about art history is that it, it, this sense that we are supposed to um, interpret so many things or assume what the artist is trying to tell us. I think sometimes that that's a load of old wank, frankly, and that the artists weren't thinking about that, those things at all. Uh, and that, that, that language, that, that baggage that we are supposed to bring to so much art actually gets in the direct way of our appreciation of it. 
Um, now it's time for us to have our fun, Bendy, because we're getting to that point in the show where we get to choose the things that we can hang on our walls. If we can choose absolutely anything, anything in the world, any picture we dream about, we can get it because in this podcast, things can happen. On the wall. So, Ben Doris, you're sitting there in your castle in Scotland or wherever it is that you live, and you can put anything you want on your walls. What have you chosen for us this week? Well, Waldo, you and I have been having a bit of a debate about what art is for, and I'm, I've chosen, you know, nice pictures to take me away from the, the grimness of our real uh, pandemic world. Um, and you said that we should be choosing pictures to sort of uh, jolt us back into the grim reality of life and consider it in new ways. Well, I think this week you're right. You might approve of what I've chosen. I've chosen Gustave Courbet's um, famous self-portrait called The Desperate Man. In French, the title, I think, is Le Désespère. Uh, painted in about 1843. We'll have a picture of it up on the Sunday Times website page. It's a, a self-portrait of, of Courbet looking a bit like Johnny Depp with the sort of long, tussled hair. And he's he's holding his head in his hands and his mouth is open and he's he's aghast at what's going on he's looking straight at us but but he's desperate he's confused he's bewildered and uh i've chosen that painting this week because basically that's been me all week not that i look like johnny depp and i certainly haven't got corbet's hair but i felt the pandemic has been uh worrying for all of us and for many of us absolutely terrifying this week is the first week i've sort of felt defeated by it and i and i don't mean the, the virus itself but the but the government's response to it and i know this is not a, a political podcast and i'm not going to get terribly political but uh, the whole the whole cummings business has quite sort of profoundly affected me i don't mean the actual journey itself which was sort of relatively trivial but the 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 contempt that the government has uh, demonstrated for all of us in the way that they've uh, defended him. I think that's been really quite shocking, quite revealing. So uh, that's why I've, I've been a little bit like Corbet's desperate man. Uh, and the way they, the way they defended Cummings, this, this terrible contempt for us all, this business with the, the eyesight and, the, and Cummings changing his blog to make it look like he was a, a soothsayer on the coronavirus and, and Grant Shapps saying that stay at home didn't really mean stay at home. I mean, it's, it's, in art historical terms, it's a bit like, uh, like standing in front of Malevich's black square painting and going, no, it's white. It's, it's definitely white. It's not black, it's definitely white. And it makes you wonder if you're crazy, doesn't it? I mean, the reason I've had such a, a sort of Corbet desperate man moment is because the penny has finally dropped and call me terribly naive, but I think you can actually draw a line from the the contempt for us all with the, the trivial things, you know, about this one car journey, right through to the, the, the big things, the massive blunders that the government has made about uh, the handling of the pandemic, the fact that we didn't lock down earlier, uh, the fact that they allowed mass gatherings uh, to continue, the fact that they went initially for herd immunity. It, it, all this happened because they hold us in contempt. They, they don't care about us. Oh dear, Bendy. Um, see, I have the advantage over the listeners in that I can see you and I can see the Corbet painting you're talking about. And as as you are getting riled up there, I mean, you you look more and more like poor, desperate Corbet tearing his hair out, looking <laughs> looking absolutely tragic. 
what can I say? I mean, yes, we've been treated like rubbish by, by a government that doesn't know what it's doing. Um, but twas ever thus, Bendy, twas ever thus. Corbet's era was the same. You know, I mean, he ended up as, as, a, as a communard, you know, they put him in prison. And uh, the, the politics of these situations are always, are always complex. But if you're telling me that humanity always disappoints us, what can I say? Yes. If you're telling me most people are rubbish at what they do, what can I say? Yes. You know, but we can't go through life just feeling that all the time. That's why you and I turn to art, Bendy. Art is a salve. It's a salvation. <laughs> It's something good to turn to. And here I'm, I'm sounding like you now because it's usually me that makes you confront stuff. Um, but I'm trying to help you because you do look like a sad little bubby over there in Scotland. <laughs> well, again, it may reflect my naivety, but you see, my first career was in politics. I used to work in the House of Commons. And uh, I always thought, I still do think, I always thought that the majority of MPs were really decent people who were there because they want to make a difference and make things better. Now, the unique tragedy of this government at this time is that all the ones who don't care have got all the levers of power. And that's, that's a bit of a fluke. It's an unlucky fluke. And it's um, terrible for all of us. It is. Um, and also, the thing about Corbet, um, just to try and shovel this back onto a bit more of an art <laughs> trail, um, is that he did do a lot of really fine self-portraits. And actually, I did a, a Twitter feed the other day of great self-portraitists, and I forgot to put Corbet on it. Stupid me. Because he did there were every, every stage of his life. And this is, you know, this is this is this one is when he was a young man and he wasn't appreciated and he was going crazy and he's putting his hair out. Uh, but later on, he became successful and he, he painted some fabulous self-portraits. There's that great one, the Atelier, you know, where he's standing, the huge painting that hangs in the Musée d'Orsay, where he's standing next to truth embodied by this plump nude and a landscape in front of him. And then there's that great painting in Montpellier, Bonjour Monsieur Courbet, where he goes to meet his patron um, in the south of France. So he, 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 he wasn't short of, um, of awareness of his own importance by the end, even though in this particular one, he's tearing his hair out. Uh, but I've, I've gone for something good too, you see. See, I've, we've switched tacks this week because you've been moaning at me for doing all this bleak, dark art. So you've gone for something bleak and dark. <laughs> and I've been thinking, well, I must give him something proper. Otherwise, you would just think all I like is Philip Gustum. So I've gone for a Rembrandt and not just any Rembrandt. This is the Rembrandt. For me, it is anyway. It's Rembrandt's Polish Rider. Oh. Now, those of you who know this painting won't need me to describe it in any great detail because the, the details will be seared already in your imagination. It's this heroic looking Polish bloke, red trousers and a fur hat, riding on a white horse through this desolate bare landscape, no vegetation, just a kind of red glowing landscape. And it is, it's, it's a sort of archetypal image of a heroic wanderer, the lone man against the world. Um, the fact that he's Polish um, obviously strikes a chord with me, but also it, it shows a sort of great historical awareness uh, on the part of Rembrandt to choose this Polish hero to be his solitary man fighting against the world. And what I think what's really intriguing <laughs> about it is that uh, it hangs in the Frick Collection in New York, of course, and I always make a beeline for it, is this kind of Wild West image. Now, this image of the, the lone man, this kind of Clint Eastwood character, doesn't actually appear anywhere else in art, does it, for, for a couple of centuries? I mean, it's incredibly ahead of its time as a, as a romantic image of the sort of the lone warrior against the world. You know, it, 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 it ticks so many boxes, this painting. So that's my picture. That's, that sort of embodies where we are in the world at the moment. Rembrandt's fantastic Polish rider. 
great choice. Uh, it's a picture I've stood in front of many times and looked at very closely. I, I, I marvel at it. And, you know, Rembrandt, I think he only painted, he's only supposed to have painted two horses in his whole life. And that's an extraordinary one, isn't it? I mean, he, he really nailed it. It's a beautifully painted horse. The funny thing about that painting is it's always struck me as a, a sign of some of the injustice that Rembrandt has faced in, in terms of art history. Because for, for a long time, for a few decades recently, it was, it was downgraded by many Rembrandt authorities and thought to be by one of his pupils called Willem Drost. Um, and this was when the, the Rembrandt research project was taking a scythe through his oeuvre. I think, I think at the beginning of the 20th century, Rembrandt was supposed to have painted about 900 and something paintings. And by the time they finished with the, uh, the oeuvre in their, their catalogue raisonné in the early 90s, I think they'd taken it down to 250 and the Polish rider was one of them. And, and I've always thought that was a terrible act of um, art historical injustice. And now, uh, happily, it's considered uh, to be a great Rembrandt again. Yeah, that Rembrandt research project did a lot of damage, didn't it? I mean, it, it was a sort of bulldozer that went through his career. And it, so many of the things that they downgraded have now been upgraded again. Same thing happened to Giorgione. They took away all his pictures and said they weren't ready by him. And now they're slowly giving them back. <laughs> um, but... I, I can't say I ever doubted it. I, I can't see any other artistic imagination, especially in the 17th century, coming up with, with this image. It's so unlike anything else by anybody else um, at any other time. It's absolutely a work of genius and probably my favourite Rembrandt. Um, so I'm glad that you like it too. And of course, the Frick Collection in New York is such a lovely museum. God, I miss going there. It's so small, it's perfect, just the right number of pictures. Um, as, do you know what? As soon as this thing is over, I'm going to get myself a flight to New York. I am going to go and see Rembrandt's Polish Rider and commune with it on a connection and person-to-person -person level. Well, I'm very tempted to come with you. Uh, one thing about the Frick that I, I don't particularly appreciate is that I like to look at pictures really closely and they're very diligent there about not letting you look too closely. So you'll have to distract the security guard while I have a good peer at the Polish rider. I'll do that. And of course, people can, uh, can see that right now on the Sunday Times pages for the Baldy and Wendy podcast, as they call it. And they can <laughs> find all the information there and great reproductions of the pictures. That's all from us. So it's bye bye from me in lockdown London. And bye bye from me desperately in lockdown Scotland. Woldy and Bendy!